There's no knowing where we're going or which way the river's flowing. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is the hurricane a-blowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? Yes! Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much. Today on the show we have our resident uh, dead zombie corpse, Willie Jean Wonka. His uh, name is not Willie Jean. Today, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Willie J. Old Willie J. Wonka here with us today on Most Excellent, the podcast, your paranormal, true crime, all things strange and peculiar podcast today. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, my wonderful Hi. co-host? I'm uh, Willie J. Wonka, and I'm... <laughs> no, I wish I, was, I wish I was Gene Wilder. I'm Gina. I'm Danielle. And, uh, <laughs> and we are here to make a big announcement. We are giving out five golden tickets. <laughs> and I'll make you a frozen waffle and an everlasting gobstopper. Oh, my okay? God. Where's okay. Slugworth when you need him the most? You are Slugworth. I think Slugworth started this entire coronavirus pandemic. That's exactly what it is. He stole the vials from that lab and he just started the whole coronavirus just because, you know, Willie J would not give him a share of the factory. <laughs> Weren't they friends? Weren't they fucking? They were not fucking. Why Weren't would they leave him that? He worked for him. That was the whole At thing. The end of the movie, does he not give, like, he's like, oh, here you go, Willie, and he gives him, like, a rose or something, and they, they get married. I don't know what okay. kind of movie you're watching, but that's the kind of movie I'm watching. That's the kind of movie I'm oh. here for. Okay, well, that's, that's not helpful. But uh, anyway, <laughs> today we're doing a special presentation in which we both did longer stories. So we're going to treat you guys to each of us doing one episode over two weeks of just a longer story. Because mine, I could not just do like run it down into like a 30 minute format because it's intense, it's involved, it's good, it's great, it's grand. So I wanted to be able to do a full deep dive on this because it's so interesting to me and it's it means the world to me. So I want to do a deep dive on it. And so you guys are getting a special treat today with a deep dive on this topic that I hope you all are interested in, that I've been interested in since I was like, you know, in my diapers. And you were researching this in your diapers. I was. So on today's episode, I'm going to be covering a much anticipated case for me. Um, and that is the curse of King Tut, or Tutankhamun, as he is known. Yes, I was actually um, reading about something with that the other day, and I was like, we should we should cover that, but you, you beat me to it, so beat congratulations. For those of you who don't know, which is probably all of you, I really wanted to be an archaeologist when I was little. I really was very interested in dinosaurs and fossils and mummies and like all that and I really wanted to be an archaeologist and I actually looked at different colleges and different programs to be an archaeologist but it takes a lot of money and you make literally no money so that didn't happen but you should just win it anyway I know so <laughs> I'm so interested in archaeology I'm so interested in Egyptology I think it's fascinating I love it I am frequently to be found at the Egyptian exhibit at the Field Museum in Chicago 
it's so beautiful. It's great. It's wonderful. I went to the actual exhibit that they had where they were able to do MRIs on bodies and they actually took the mummies out of their sarcophagus. And it was the most interesting thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I loved it. So that reminded me of this case. I was just thinking about that the other day and I was researching cases to do and I was going to do another case that was similar to the case of um, our first episode, which was Atsi, the Uzi, yeah, Lo Uzi. <laughs> so it was actually similar to that case and it was just so similar to the point where I didn't want to cover it because it was it was just kind of repetitive so mm -hmm. I decided to do this instead so are you ready Gina are you ready for this I tale? am so excited I have my black tourmaline by my computer I have my um blood jasper stone I have my crystals I'm connected to the earth and now I'm ready to hear about the mummies of the earth Okay, so where our story is going to start is in 1922 with British archaeologist Howard Carter, who is beginning his search in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. And so what's to note here is that he's been digging in Egypt since around 1891. Damn. And so he's been there for a long time, and he kind of went in and out of different programs, and he went in and out of different dig sites and things, just kind of looking uh, looking for mummies, looking for artifacts. So he's been there for a while. So finally, on November 4th of 1922, they find a rock crevice and they discover that the rock is actually the top step of a flight of stairs that go into the earth and they end in a mud sealed door. Hell yeah. Can you imagine how exciting that would be? I would literally, I would shit the bed. I'd be like, this is the most incredible thing <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. You're not even walk away. But you would shit the bed. I would shit the bed. Absolutely. So they're unsure of exactly what is behind the door or if it's anything important or if it will kind of be this great dig that he's looking for because he's trying to find something that's going to impress this Lord that is backing him for the, for the entirety of the dig because mm -hmm. at this point, this is really, it's kind of a shaky expedition. They can't really find anything that's worthwhile and they are essentially about to get shut down. So at this point in time, they believe that there's actually no two more tombs to be found. They're basically theorizing that all the tombs have been found at this point and there's nothing else left for them to find. So they find this door on November 4th and he's thinking like, this is it for me. It's great. And he actually gets really lucky because on November 26th of 1922, he and... George Herbert, who we're going to talk about later, they make a tiny hole in a doorway, and with a candle in hand, they're able to peer into this tomb, and they find one of Egypt's most famous mummies known as King Tut. And yeah. in his diary, Carter basically describes this encounter by saying that it was, quote, it was some time before one could see the hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker, but as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinarily extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another. So that was how he kind of describes this first look that they get into the tomb. So he actually manages to chisel this door open enough to actually ease a candle in. And inside, he finds the most intact and well-preserved pharaonic tomb ever to be discovered. And so how it's how the tomb is fashioned is that there's two outer chambers that have been opened before and probably looted. But the interior chamber where the body actually is, has been se it's sealed. So that hasn't been broken. But the two outside chambers have been and probably were looted right when he was buried. They were so, like, we got to get our coin. 
Exactly. And get their coin they did because he, you when we find out how much is in here, it's insane. So the sep I, I don't I don't know how to say this word, okay? It's sepul sepulchral sepulchral chamber is opened in February of 1923 and the sarcophagus is actually discovered on January 3rd of 1924. Wow. So when they first walk into the tomb, Carter said that there was this basically just this escape of hot air that once he broke through the second seal door, they just it's just like a whoosh of hot air comes out. Um, and he describes it as actually kind of crawling along the floor. So it's weird and kind of spooky. So now we're going to go back in time to before this dig happens and kind of how they got the money for it, okay? And who is involved in this specific dig. So yeah. in 1907, Lord Carnarvon, he begins to provide Carter with funding for an excavation of noble tombs in Deir el-Bari. And he basically is recommended, like Carter is recommended because he had worked in the region beforehand. Like I told you, he's been working in this region for a long time and he knows the area. And he actually was the one who was preferred for this because he would be, he was able to hand draw like these incredible maps and paintings from tomb walls freehand. That's so cool. Just freehand all these paintings and these maps. And he develops this grid system to kind of map out the undiscovered tombs. Um, but what happens is that this dig essentially gets interrupted by world war one. So in 1917, they're able to go back again and they really didn't have all that much to show for it by the time that they discover the tomb. Because, like I was saying, as as they are about to discover this tomb, the dig is about to be pulled because they're not finding anything. So, Lord Carnav- Lord Carnivarn, I don't know how to say this word, but the Lord, essentially, he is the one that is funding this. And essentially, they're not having anything to show for it. So, he's like, you know what? Forget it. We're not going to do this. But luckily, they end up finding the tomb. So, let's talk a little bit about the person who's in the tomb. Yeah. So... Tutankhamun, Tutankhamun, um, at around 1324 BCE, at the age of 10, he becomes the pharaoh of Egypt. And he was originally born as Tutankhaten, and he later changed his name to Tutankhamun because of things we're going to talk about later. He so, later changed his name to Two Chains. It, uh, uh, otherwise known as Two Chains, yes. <laughs> so... He changes, at first his name meant living image of Aten versus living image of Amun. And they change it around three, 1341 BCE is when he decides to change his name. And we'll get into why he does that later. So okay. he was ruling during the 18th dynasty of Egypt's new kingdom era, which was between, he ruled between 1333 to 1324. I'm so sorry. I messed that up. He was, uh, he became the pharaoh at age 10 in 13 like 1333 is when he became the pharaoh okay um so he was the grandson of pharaoh amenhotep ii and his father was akhenaten akhenaten who was married to his sister nefertiti ah yes and his his father is a really controversial figure because his dad essentially changed the entire religious system to a monotheistic one where they were worshiping one sun god. That's my cat, guys. Uh, <laughs> she's upset. She's upset because people are, are fucking their sisters. So. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> as one does. So 
his father basically changes from a polytheistic religion to a monotheistic religion where they're worshiping one sun god who is the god Aten. And so when Tutankhamun, King Tut, when he takes he takes over, he essentially reverses everything that his father did. And he basically is like, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to go back to how things were essentially. And so he was hoping that this would kind of make him a memorable king at that time because his dad was so hated for doing this. He's like, this is my chance to reverse all of that. Right. So let's talk a little bit like, you know, how I was talking about that whole sister fucking thing. Yes. So let's talk about what the result of that is. So for those who don't know, <laughs> King Tut actually had scoliosis. He had a clubbed foot. He had necrosis of the bone tissue. He had an overbite and a cleft palate. And due to what other than inbreeding, that's what it is. That's why he's like this. Um, he marries, he continues the tradition on though. And he actually marries his half-sister who's Ankesamun. Ankesamun. So he marries his half-sister. And they all believe in essentially marrying within the immediate family because they believe that they're all ascended from the gods and that you have to keep the bloodline pl- bloodline pure. So if you marry within the family, it's keeping the bloodline pure. There's no dilution at all of this supposed god-descended bloodline. Right. And so... <laughs> but there is no dilution. So... <laughs> and then everyone just comes out straight up all like the you know their necrosis of the bone tissue club foot scoliosis ass looking people because right. you're marrying your sister so it's actually really funny because before she married king tut his sister slash wife his sister wife she and her older sisters were actually brides to his dad and were used to conceive children the usual the usual as one does uh but the issue is that as you would expect, many of these ended in miscarriages and stillbirths because it's oh, that's that's what happens a lot of the time when you have people like brothers and sisters marrying each other. Yeah. So inbreeding is actually a really big issue because if you when you marry someone who's not of your genetic makeup, you're essentially giving them you're giving your child a better chance of weeding out bad genetics. But if you have two people who have the ability to pass on genetic defects it's essentially assuring that you're going to get those defects because there's no chance of one gene winning out over the other and essentially assuring that maybe your kid has the possibility of not getting passed on any defects. So inbreeding was a big problem until, my God, I can't even, like, not even, like, recently, like, in the last hundred years, like, it's been weeded out. But, like, in the 1800s, you still had people who were marrying their, like, first cousins and marrying their brothers and sisters and all of that. So... It was a big issue, and it was a real big issue in Egypt, and it made it made it so that a lot of a lot of people were walking around looking like King Tut, who were r- ruling, because it's all just these genetic defects getting passed down through the family line for years and years and years. So he tried to secure an heir, but they ended up having two female children who were actually believed to be stillbirths, and they mm-hmm. were actually found in his tomb, and they were estimated to be about five to eight months of age, and one of the fetuses was like they evaluated her and she probably had spina bifida and so they were actually in the tomb with him okay he dies at 19 in 1324 and so a lot of speculation has been said about his death wait so the dad dies in 1324 sorry king tut dies in 1324 
Oh, I thought you said he came to power in 1333. It goes backward, the timeline. Oh, okay. I was so confused. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, sorry, guys. I should have explained that. It's BCE, so it's going backwards in the timeline. And so it, that's why I got confused because I said, like, oh, it's 1324. And I was like, no. So he starts in about 1333, and then he dies in 1324. Okay, gotcha. So he dies at 19 in 1324. And oh, there's a lot of speculation about it. And the one that I think is the most – I'm going to talk about the other ones, but I think the most probable theory here is that he died of – complications from a broken leg that were made worse by constant bouts of malaria mm, so that will do it, that will do it to you so the, journal, so the journal of the american medical association is the one that conducted the investigation on this and they theorized that it was an infection from a fracture that occurred in his left thigh and he already had a weakened immune system because he had been suffering from several episodes of what of malaria because they found traces of these malaria parasites in the body and Mm -hmm. your body can't fight off. If it's already weakened, his body couldn't fight off the infection that came on because it's already weakened. He breaks his leg. It probably got infected and that'll do it to you. So that's, that's one theory. And the one I think is probably the most likely to what has happened, but there's also the murder plot theory, which posits that there is a hole in the back of his skull. Okay. Um, But the hole was, and everyone thinks like, oh, someone hit him over the back of the head and they killed him. And it was this whole big murder plot because of his father. But most likely the whole was concluded to be due to mummification practices and how they did it. So they probably that was probably damage that was done while they were mummifying him and not necessarily there's not strong enough evidence to conclude that he was murdered or that it was caused by blunt force trauma. Okay. Um, so they did CT scans and they essentially revealed that, yeah, he did have an infected broken left leg. So that's probably what it was. So Tut was mummified in accordance with tradition because it's believed that they were, you were, you had to be mummified so that you were preserved for the afterlife. And so they would, they had removed his organs and they wrapped him in resin soaked bandages. And he was placed. So he was placed in his um, sarcophagus and they placed a 24 pound solid gold mask over his head and shoulders amazing that's how i want to go and then he was laid in three golden coffins then a granite sarcophagus and then there's a four wooden shrine so it's multi-layered he's real protected from the elements okay which is probably why he's in such good condition because they're multi-layered they've been mummified it's all one all one thing that's just protecting him from the elements right so his tomb is tomb KV62 um, in the Valley of the Kings in Upper Egypt. So this is the burial site for almost all of the pharaohs from the 18th to 20th century dynasties. So there's a whole. this is a whole big valley of just all of them. And his death most likely was really unexpected because his tomb was actually pretty small. And they probably converted it. It was probably being built for another person and they just basically converted it for him to use and his tomb was actually used by the man who ruled after him whose name was a a a a he abusing what is probably tut's tomb because they didn't think that tut was going to die so soon he was only 19 so they were like oh shit we got to get him somewhere so they threw him in whatever tomb 
that was probably for like a smaller lord, they think. Okay. And so there's actually evidence that his tomb is plundered at some point, like I was saying, but after this point, he's kind of forgotten from history. And his tomb entrance was actually covered with structures from another tomb for a later pharaoh. So they really didn't care about him. They were kind of like, yeah, whatever, fine, bye. And so because of his dad, essentially because of his father, that's the reason that he is kind of largely forgotten because his dad did so many bad things that he couldn't, he only ruled for nine years. So he couldn't really reverse that damage enough to be remembered. So they essentially forgot about him. We're like, hey, he got yeeted and greeted out of there. He did a spit and quit it and you never heard about him again. That's exactly what happened. That's what everyone, everything that happens is all our dad's fault. It's no all our It's all our fathers. Happy Father's Day 2020, everyone. Day, guys. King Tut had a really bad father and he was garbage and he fucked his daughters and it was not okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So let's talk about this tomb. So his tomb is actually filled with more than 5,000, more than 5,000 artifacts and it was filled with furniture and weapons, staffs, clothes, oils, perfumes, his childhood toys, jewelry, on top of jewelry, on top of jewelry, he had his jewelry there. He was stacked. Green, tomatoes, potatoes, lamb, ram, chicken. Yep, lamb, ram, every, chicken. Every. That was in <laughs> Chocolate cake, ivory <laughs> cake. That was even one from Fairly Off Parents. He's like, uh, loose, loose, loose juice. Lo- loose juice, guava juice, chocolate Chomp- cake. <laughs> <laughs> there and there's statues of gold and ebony he has a she has actual chariots in there there's clothes and like i was saying like he's got stacks in here and he has 130 walking sticks because he needs them to walk because or he's gandalf either way so these objects are actually now found in the egyptian museum in cairo and his mask is actually modeled after osiris who was the god of the afterlife and mask, like i was saying is literally made of solid gold and gemstones like 24 to 22 to 24 pounds of solid gold and gemstones is what this mask is made out of they just so, had gold on deck didn't they they were living they were thriving back then like i was saying he was largely unknown at this point but he has all these gems he's stacked okay and then they find his tomb and it's just like he becomes one of the most important mummies of all time so this largely forgotten pharaoh becomes just like stacked with so much importance for us um, so it took them actually around 10 years to retrieve everything from this tomb because it right, was right. just processing that, you know, back in the day you have to transport things everywhere and it took them literally 10 years just to get everything out, to get everything kind of processed. So <laughs> now that's the whole, we have our whole little backup. We have our whole little story about him. Now let's talk about. Some- also, sorry if you hear. A lawnmower in the background. Everyone in my neighborhood has decided that now is the time to do all of their yard work right outside my window. So, <laughs> just in case. Having a meet up with their, their lawnmowers. I'm like, everyone just go inside. Shut up. Go inside your house and be quiet. You're, who's going to look at your lawn? Nobody. We're all inside. No so, continuing on. Anyway. Now we're going to go into the fun part of this episode, which is besides, I know the, the sister fucking was really exciting for some of you, but now we're going to talk. <laughs> For all you Thrones lovers. We're going to lose all of our listeners just through this one episode. Uh, so now we're going to talk about the infamous curse of King Tut. 
And it starts with our founder of like our funder of this whole expedition in the first place, who is this 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 name though, George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Okay. Sounds British. Real British. So we're just gonna call him George Herbert. George Herbert. Yep. So he's the one that is financing this search. And he dies in on April 5th of 1923, which is just about five months after the tomb is opened. And he dies at the age of 57. Hmm. Now, it's really interesting how he dies because he got bit by a mosquito while they were in Thebes visiting the just opened tomb. So he gets bit by a mosquito. He then proceeds to tear open the cut while he's shaving. It gets infected. He gets blood poisoning that progresses to pneumonia. And it's said that the bite was in the exact same place where they found a lesion on King Tut's cheek. Uh-uh. So let's, okay, maybe that's, but let's, let's, let's pause it for a little bit here. So he actually had gotten into a car crash in his 30s, which made it really easy for him to get lung infections and all type of infections. And he goes to Egypt because it's actually a warm climate is recommended for it to be good for his condition. And so he already is really susceptible to infection. So it could be, it could be that he died because he's really susceptible to infections. He's already, it's, this is just a normal thing, but it's really interesting that he gets bit by a mosquito while he's visiting Tut's tomb. And it's supposedly on the same place that Tut had a lesion. I think that's really interesting. He's also the one that did the dig to, actually excavate this body here right it's bizarre it's it kind of one of those things that like yeah it could be a coincidence but like it's too weird to be a coincidence yeah it's it's so strange that it's just like all of these cases that we're going to talk about these are all i'm going to be talking about all the victims of the supposed king tut's curse all of this is just way too strange to not be somehow connected to me personally i don't know Mm -hmm. I just thought I would mention that, though, that he was prone to infections. That is something that we know about him. But also, it's really strange how the way things turned out. And it was also rumored that the lights in the city and in his house went out when he died. Oh. Real creepy. So the curse of the pharaohs actually begins right here. Like, this is the first case that we have, okay? Now, the curse of the pharaohs kind of becomes a thing and becomes to be, like, this big thing that we know about now because of who other than like our Sherlock writing homeboy, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was also mentioned last week in the case of Hellish Nell. Yes. So Arthur Conan Doyle is a big, he's a big figure in the spiritualist movement. He's constantly in everyone's business. He can't mind his business, but that's okay. Thank you. Love him, live him, own him. So, (laughs) so six weeks before the death of, George Herbert, they was when all the news starts to hit the papers about the mummy that they found. And it hits the papers and there's really mixed opinions on everything because it's all very exciting to them. Everyone is just like, oh my God, this has never been found before. This is so interesting. And everyone is kind of going nuts for it. But then there's also the opinion that there's been a very, which is true, that there's been a really big violation here. So people are kind of teetering on that edge like, it's wrong to violate the tomb, but this is also really exciting. So when news of Herbert's death actually reaches England, that's when Doyle remarks that it could have been a result of, quotes, elementals or curses created by the priest to guard the tomb of King Tut. I'm here for that. I think that might be true. So 
this is where we get the idea of the curse of King Tut. We get the idea of the curse of the pharaohs. It's all here. He's the, he's the one that solidifies and legitimizes this idea for the masses here. Um, yeah. And also a novelist whose name was Marie Corelli, she speculates that the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. Yeah. It's true. Pretty true. So remember how we were talking about this whole like hot air thing that I was saying? That there was growing around in the tomb, okay? Like how they went in, they felt this like huge whoosh of hot air coming. Like, oh my God, they think it's super spooky. But most likely, this hot air is most likely just thousands of years of toxic mold being released and getting soaked up into your lungs after it's been growing in this tomb forever, okay? So George Herbert most likely just died of being an immunocompromised person who is more susceptible to infection he of course would die upon first contact with all this toxic mold that's growing in there so it could but also i think it was it was probably that but also maybe tut was like you funded this whole dig into my life and now you're gonna get ruined i'm gonna split your wig bro it could go either way could go either way now we're gonna talk about the next victim of this king tut curse who is sir bruce ingham and Carter actually gives him a paperweight, which this is really inappropriate, but also it's like the 1920s and they just did what they wanted. So he gave him a paperweight, which was actually a mummified hand that was wearing a scarab bracelet. And the phrase on the bracelet that he gave him said, curse be he who moves my body to him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. And guess what happens to Bruce Ingham? His house burns down after he gets it. And then during the rebuild, his house floods. You know what? That'll do it. When you give someone a literal cursed mummified hand that's someone's body from a tomb with a curse on it, like that might happen. Yep. Yep. So now we're going to move on to George J. Gould, who was a finance financier from America. Now he gets sick. He, he, he goes to go visit the tomb and he gets sick and he dies a few months after in May of 1923. So he goes for a tomb visit. He also dies. Okay. But, but it could also just be this tomb is nasty. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you- sure. So now we have Aubrey Herbert, who was George's half brother. George is the one who funded this dig. So he was born with a degenerative eye condition and he becomes blind later in his life. <laughs> it's not funny. All right. <laughs> I have all of his teeth pulled because the doctor tells him that this is going to help him see, to- see again. But like, you know, plot twist, he's still blind after he gets all of his teeth pulled out. And he dies of sepsis because of getting his teeth pulled only five months after his brother does. So I think this one is not, they said he's a victim, but like, honestly, like, no, this guy just died of a nasty infection. And, you know, died blind because this doctor straight up lied his ass. They just let anyone be a doctor. They were like, here you go. Here is a certificate and a pound of cocaine. Have fun. Do what you want. Here's this nice Dr. Pepper to treat your patients of tuberculosis. Everything's going to be okay. Let me pull out all of your teeth so you can see with your special eyes. It didn't right. Here comes the ambulance. They know, they know yep. what we're talking about. <laughs> so now we're going to move on to another British archaeologist who was Hugh Evelyn White. And he visited and he also might have been helping a little bit with excavation. And he becomes so haunted by the idea of the curse and he sees these other people who are dying and he gets really freaked out and he ends up committing suicide and he hung himself 
And his suicide note was essentially written on the wall and it reads, quote, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. Uh, this is most likely a case of depression, but also who knows? Yeah. Who knows? So now we have Aaron Ember, who was an American Egyptologist, and he is actually present when the tomb is open, and so was his wife. And this is really interesting. So in 1926, his house in Baltimore essentially burns down in less than an hour after a dinner party. And as his house is burning, his wife is like, no, 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 you have to go back and save this manuscript. And so she goes to grab the son, like their son's in the house. She goes to grab the son and he goes to save this manuscript. And they would have been, they would have come out of this alive, but they all die because he goes back for the manuscript, she goes for the sun, and that moment of pause is why they ended up dying, because they stayed in the house. And the manuscript that he went back to grab, and the manuscript he essentially died for, was for the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Wow. So, now we're going to move on to James Henry Breasted. Love this okay. name. He's good with Breasty. James John Jingleheimer Schmidt. Yes, Miss Mary Mack. This is her brother, James yep. had big titty, the big titty James. Here he is. I'm gonna rename you in my phone, Big Titty James, and I'm really. Excited. We're gonna be, we're gonna be sued after this fucking episode. <laughs> Just giving everyone different names. This man whose like life was, you know, lost at this point and doing all this work has come down to Big Titty James. Big Titty James. So he was an Egyptologist, and he was working with Carter when the tomb was opened, and he actually helps to decode the writings in the tomb. And so he goes home and he sees his pet canary being eaten by a cobra. And this is important oh. because this is important because the cobra is a really, really important symbol for Egyptian monarchy. And it essentially is this moment is supposed to symbolize like the cobra is a warning to them, like this is the beginning of the curse for y'all, and y'all better watch out. And so he ends up dying in 1935 after he takes a trip to Egypt. Hmm. Which I don't know. Could be, could not be. All of these are kind I mean, of... He just came home and there was like a random ass cobra yep. eating his bird? Yep. That's weird. That's not normal. It's also strange because, you know, it's this This is the symbol of Egyptian monarchy and it's eating y'all after you open this tomb. Like, get right. with it. So now we're going to Richard Bethel, who was Lord... Well, George Herbert. It was his secretary. And was he was the first person to go behind Carter into the tomb when they go in. And he actually dies under some super suspicious circumstances in 1929. He was found at a London gentleman's club smothered to death in his room. Allegedly, there were fires in some of the places that he kept the artifacts that happened before this point so there's there's these rumors of fires going on where like he had kept artifacts from the dig and then he's found dead after all these small fires are happening okay hmm. um which you know maybe he just got smothered maybe some girl was just there she was like i'm really tired of this man coming into this gentleman's club i've had enough she smothers him with her thighs and she takes off with his wallet and i support her i, mean, I hope that's how the story really went i really hope that's what it was <laughs> um <laughs> But his, what was really interesting here, too, is that his father, who is Lord Westbury, or his name was Richard Luttrell Pilkington Bethel, he dies in 1930, and he plunged seven floors to his death from his apartment where some of the artifacts were actually being kept. 
Interesting. So the next victim we have is Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who dies in 1924. And he is the radiologist that actually x-rayed King Tut before they handed the mummy over to the museum. Okay. He gets sick the day after and he dies three days later. That's weird. That's a little too soon. That's to a little bit, Yeah, that's a little bit too soon here. Okay. So the next one, this is really interesting too, is you have Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey, and he mm-hmm. died in July of 1923. He's an Egyptian prince. He dies after visiting the tomb and he's shot to death by his wife, whose name is Marie Marguerite. Are you kidding me? Yep. Yep. Um, we have Arthur Mace here who helped Carter open up the burial chamber. And in 1924, he ends up going back home from the dig due to health problems. And he ends up dying in 1928 as a complication of what is believed to be arsenic poisoning. Oh. So either he's getting slowly poisoned or something else happened here. But he ends up going home for the dig due to his health problems. So maybe he was slowly getting poisoned. I don't know. Um, and Sir Lee Stack, who is the governor of General Sudan, he was a excavation team member and he gets assassinated while driving through Cairo. So all of these people, like I just gave you a list of all these people who have either have direct contact, they financed it, they were involved, like just like the case with Utsi, you have all these people who are all intertwined working on this case who were taking part in disturbing a body that has been there for thousands of years and was buried in a sacred manner for a reason. And then it's now being excavated. The body's being taken out. All the objects are getting disturbed and stolen. And you have people taking mummified hands and other objects that are literal people's bodies. That's literally a person and scattering them around the globe to be viewed. Right. I feel like, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I feel like if you do that with anyone or anything that has held a specific amount of energy, especially going that far back into, you know, these ancient Egyptian times and number one, definitely disrespecting it and just kind of like, like, oh, you know, this is, you know, for people to view and, you know, and all of like the religion and the process that went into mummifying these bodies and, you know, the sacredness that this holds and you're just putting that out there, that's going to bring back all of that energy that was there to begin with. And mm-hmm. I think it's definitely going to bring something along with it that is going to affect anyone who comes in contact with it. And there's a certain amount of reverence that imbu- that is imbued within that body because of how well they preserve it and take care of it and how much that meant to them. So mm-hmm. when you disturb that by literally just stripping, and it wasn't like they were careful about it because it's 1922. Right. It's not like this. Now I think that there's much more reverence for the body. And I think to a degree too, I do feel bad about going to the museum and when they did have the, the bodies on display for the MRIs and all of that, I was like, you do feel really bad because it's just, it feels wrong to have this body just out on display. It's in a cold museum. It's kind of just like, it's weird. It's a weird feeling. Yeah. And it's, what? Yeah. I said, it's a person, you yeah, know, they were being. So it's kind of strange. It's like all just kind of all these strange things are happening and you can't help but be like, okay, but you all were involved in this thing and you all know what's up here. And there was probably no 
no reverence being held here for any of these bodies or these people who are like who really existed okay right um so now we're going to move to the most important member of this entire team who is howard carter and he sort of is he's kind of wishy-washy because he really leaned into this curse because it supported a story and a narrative and made this case what it was so mm-hmm. he kind of leaned into it, and he sort of wanted this story to get circulated about the curse, not only because it was going to bring attention to it, but also because it would kind of warn people to stay away from the tomb so no one would go and be curious and try to claim anything, you know? Yeah. And, and also, like, scare away grave robbers and all of that, but whatever. So he kind of leans into it. And Howard Carter actually ends up dying in 1930, 1939 of lymphoma when he was 64 years old. Okay. Most likely, he probably got this as a complication from working in the tomb. Even though he dismissed the idea of the curse as, quote, Tommy Rot. Whatever that <laughs> Tommy- means. I, I love mean, that. I'm going to honestly change my name to Tommy Rot. That would be my, yeah. like, what are the, like, the, my rollerblading name, my roller derby name would be, like, Tommy Rot. Tommy Rot. Tom, good old Tommy Rot. So <laughs> he. Um, he dismissed the whole idea, but he also kind of played into it because it really helped his it helped his cause. Um, and his gravestone, it's really interesting because his gravestone has an inscription from an item that was found in the tomb on a chalice. And it was yeah. called a whipping cup. And it says, may your spirit live. May you spend. Um, okay. I've just been informed by a reliable source that King Tut's wife was Anak Sinemun. Okay. So there's okay. my for everybody. Her name is Anoxinamun. Okay. Oxycontin. Yes. It was Oxycontin. <laughs> Absolutely. She's gonna come she's gonna come freaking curse us tonight. You know what? I hope she does. It'll be the most exciting time I've had through this entire quarantine. <laughs> cursed by Oxycontin. Being haunted by good old Oxycontin. Um, all right. So back to Howard Carter. Back to good yeah. old Tommy Roddy. So <laughs> This is what is inscribed onto his grave, which is, like I was saying, it's from the Wishing Cup. And it says, may your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who loved Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. O night, spread thy wings over me as the imperishable stars. Which is really beautiful. I think that's really great. Um, Wow. It's really pretty. It's really... It's real nice. You know what I mean? It's real nice for a him. Nice the ending, the ending of that, I just I'm just reading you was on the actual chalice. He only has a, a piece of that on his on his tomb, but the behold it ends up beholding happiness in the O night, but that was like was on the rest of the cup. Okay. Uh, but I thought it was really pretty to mention. Anyway. It is. So 58 people were there when the tomb opens. And only eight of them are dead within the 12 years afterward. Which I think is pretty high. That's a pretty high amount of people to die in just... I mean, the- yeah, I mean, even one person, you know, after that. I mean, that is that is eight people. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty hefty number, even though it's, you know, out of 58. But I... And just with the circumstances surrounding it, it's it, it comes off as a bit suspicious. Like, if it was like, oh, they died of you know, age or, you know, had cancer or, you know what I mean? Which Howard Carter, his death, I think, is the most kind of, like, quote-unquote natural out of all of them. Yeah. 
But at the same time, it's it's a direct complication of working with the tomb, I think. I would think so. So they actually ended up conducting this test where they were drilling holes in the unopened sarcophagus and they kind of tested the air quality and what they find inside is ammonia formaldehyde and hydrogen sulfide wow you figure when they're opening this up that's all going in everybody's lungs and everyone's Mm -hmm. breathing that right in and i they didn't really let they probably didn't really even let anything breathe or let anything kind of right Um, I doubt anyone was wearing a mask either. No one was wearing a mask. No one was doing anything. So it's just like you're breathing that directly in, okay? Yeah. So they conduct this whole test. They find out that's what's inside. And then it's like, oh, Lord. So Dr. Carolyn Stenger-Philippe, her doctoral thesis that she conducted was on this whole idea of the King Tut curse, okay? So she posits that all of this is a direct result of a severe allergic reaction to fungi. So she posited that they all had contracted something called allergic alveolitis, which can cause inflammation in the chambers of your lungs. Now, there is no proof of this. This is just her theory. And it's really interesting because when she was actually coming home from being interviewed, like I read the article, and they said that when she was coming home from being interviewed, her car broke down in the middle of the st- middle of this huge storm on a road. Uh oh. Oh yeah. So now, okay, we're gonna move to my favorite theory because it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire twenty five years of living. Amazing. So none other than my boy, actual nasty ass wizard, Alistair Crowley. <laughs> Yeah. So nasty ass was. <laughs> I actually just watched the gospel episode. If you don't change, if you don't change my name in your phone to actual nasty ass wizard, I'm gonna be so upset. I'm gonna change your name in my phone to little tutty. <laughs> so this author named Mark Bainon, he 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 posits that Crowley is behind all of this. Because his gods and goddesses and philosophy were actually drawn from the Egyptian religion. So he wanted to take revenge at Carter for digging up this sacred tomb. Okay. The amount, like, you got to be on your tippy toes with stilts for the reach that this man has made to make Aleister Crowley responsible for this, okay? So he claims that... Crowley was having an affair with Marie Marguerite, who was married to that prince who got shot by her. So he was rumored to be having an affair with her and that he, Mark says that he forced her into the shooting. And then he said that he was having an affair with this Marguerite woman. He forces her into the shooting. So that's one, that's one victim. And then he claims, Mark claims that actually Aleister Crowley was the one who sent Marie Marguerite to kill Richard Bethel, who was the one that got smothered to death. Um, He claims that like, oh, he sent her to kill him. And then he said that, oh, Crowley actually was a guest at the club and had just returned to London before then, like right before he died. So he's like, oh, he sent her to do it or like Crowley. Okay. And then Lord Westbury, who is the father of the guy who got smothered to death by some stripper's thighs, bless her. Uh, 
it's rumored that he is actually the one that threw the old man off the ledge because he was too elderly to climb onto the ledge himself. This I was like, you know, a reach, mama. This is a whole reach. So this whole lady was just behind like, everyone. Alistair Crowley did not kill all these people, okay? He was too busy eating shit out of a tortoise mm-hmm. shell. He didn't have time. So now yeah. we're gonna talk about Sir Ernest Wallace Budge, who actually died in November of 1934. And he was the keeper at the British Museum Department of Egyptian and Assyrian Antiques. He's found dead at age 77, and he was a friend of George Herbert, and he displayed objects from the Tut Dig. And there is supposedly evidence that he was friends with Crowley, and he worked in the occult scene. So supposedly this Wallace Budge guy... He died of what I think is like natural circumstances, but he died. They're saying, oh, that Crowley killed him because he was like in the occult scene and supposedly he killed him. And I was like, all right. So allegedly, this is what his whole theory rests on, is that the day after a lot of these people died, Crowley said that he felt lifted. That's it. That's all he has. Maybe he took a really good shit. Why does that mean that he is he lifted because he just murdered all these people? Maybe. Right. Maybe he He finally, finally found, found the acceptance of Christ's love. He finally found it and he's uplifted. <laughs> or he just had some really good Taco Bell. Like he got that quesadilla and he's like, God, he's like, this I is am absolutely lifted. the most beautiful quesadilla I've ever had in my life. I feel absolutely lifted. lifted. My bowels have emptied. I feel so clear. The clarity, amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean, how true. I feel after I eat Taco uh, Bell. So that is essentially the whole case and curse of King Tut that I have for y'all today. And those are two theories that I posited where it's like, here's a ridiculous one, Crowley. Then there's the more sensible one, which is probably that everyone just died of toxic mold complications. But that doesn't explain. Her her thing was that, oh, this explains why we have all these deaths surrounding it. And I was like, okay, but most of these people didn't die of those kinds of complications. They died of like, somebody was smothered. Somebody got shot like those don't that doesn't explain toxic mold doesn't explain all of all of those other weird happenings that happen toxic mold doesn't explain somebody being shot it doesn't explain that this one was smothered he jumped off a ledge like all that doesn't explain everything i mean explain some of it and that it makes sense for the most part and it probably what is what killed howard carter but it doesn't explain all the really weird deaths that happened in this case yeah i think coincidence can only go up to a certain extent for me and I do think that there definitely has to be a I don't even know how to phrase it like a spiritual like energetic side of it that Mm -hmm. is coming out of this and influencing at least some aspects of these people's lives I mean obviously like even if not all of it was a curse. It's still so interesting how everything is connected. And you have these artifacts in these people's houses and this mummified hand with this bracelet, you know, and this person's house burning down and flooding and, you know, and then it's just even so interesting with, you know, the actual, you know, knowledge of that this tomb had all this mold in it. And, you know, you have the, you know, physical parts of it too. It's just... It's, a, it's just I so fascinating. I absolutely loved researching this. I think it was so interesting because I've always been so interested in Egypt. That's always been something that was of so much, like, I was obsessed with it. So 
to actually get into deep delve into this case and find out how many weird things happened, it was amazing because you get to see these little things all kind of coming together where it's like somebody took this piece of him. Somebody disturbed this. Somebody did this. Like somebody did somebody wrong. This guy funded the dig. It's all like how it all comes together is just absolutely fascinating to me. And I think it's way too much of a coincidence that all of these people who had major roles in excavating this body all somehow died in spirit. Like these really suspicious circumstances that happen that are kind of one in a million. I love this case. I yeah. think it's really interesting. I think it really right. kind of it puts some it puts some credit into the idea that like you there is energy to things. There is a certain amount of kind of karmic mm-hmm. energy that happens. So if you go ahead and you disturb this tomb with no reverence and no kind of consideration for the fact that this is an actual person, like bad things will probably happen to you. Right. I mean, look at, you know, what we talked about last week with the Hellfire Club and them literally destroying this entire burial ground Mm -hmm. to build a hunting lodge and all of the things that happen there as an effect of it. It's just, you know, you see this every, you know, all supposed places that are cursed, you know, or a haunting or it's all things that have been either disturbed or probably disrespected. You know, there's a lot of tours going on. And even just like the Egypt, ancient Egypt in general is just so amazing with, you know, with you have the pyramids and all the astrological aspects of it and, you know, the way they preserved and treated their dead and all the mythology and religion behind it is just amazing. And you could, we could talk about this for hours. It's something I'm so interested in because it really is the sort of beginning of the beginning of like how like how fascinated I became with kind of all things spiritual and weird and creepy and like the beginning of this podcast kind of is in archaeology and all those weird things that I had such a big interest in. So I love covering cases like this because it really sparked that interest for me of like, oh, this is why it kind of how we started the podcast with this weird archaeological curse case. And now we go back to another really weird case later on, like almost a year later. It really sparked my interest for like weird things and kind of wanting to look into things like curses and this and mummies and all of that. Like I absolutely love researching stuff like this because it's weird and it's creepy and it's paranormal. But at the same time, it's also you also have to realize like how much this is a real person. And that was really his life and that was really like his body that got disturbed and mummified hands were really sent to people. So I I have Caught those mummified hands. hands. They caught his Mm -hmm. hands. Literally. I love that. Well, that was really good. And the way you covered everything was really great. And I'm even more excited to record the next episode, which part two of this is also going to involve some cursed Mm -hmm. objects. And I'm going to be talking about uh, Rudolph Valentino and his hauntings and curses throughout old Hollywood. And I am so excited so we go from mummies mm-hmm. to italians it's pod- basically this podcast mummies the and italians thing. that's all it is that's all it is but thank you guys so much for listening please follow um, us on instagram and twitter at most excellent dm us email us most excellent pod at gmail.com with your own stories um post we haven't gotten a review for a while on apple Podcasts. if you use that and you listen please tell us what you think 
DM us, send us an email, whatever you want. But thank you so much for listening. And we can't wait to post part two. Bye, guys. Excellent.